All right, Lucas, we are officially live. Uh, I'm excited to dive in with, dive in with you today. Uh, I don't know if I've interviewed someone who has done so many podcasts as you, but uh, uh, why don't we kick it off with a little bit of background on what you're most focused on now with uh, Tribute, which translates to tribe, as you mentioned in the pre-show. Uh, yeah, would love to hear what the impetus was for, for starting it, what, what your kind of motivating energy to build what you're building is. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. I'm super excited to be on this podcast. It's good to yeah, expand the networks outside of the Australia. If you can't tell my accent, um, been locked down here for two years. I wish I was over in America right now, hopefully not too far away. Uh, so essentially, I've been in business and in the IT support and what we call many, many service providers, so MSP, outsourced IT world, uh, for the last 17 years, uh, owned and operated multiple businesses, um, scaled failed and exited companies. Uh, so many, many, uh, yeah, too many sleepless nights of experience when it comes to <laughs> running and scaling businesses. Uh, one thing uh, to answer your question around why did we start Tribute and I guess what is our vision and, and I guess why did we go down this world? The There's two parts of it. One is in the MSP space, the IT support space, we were getting really frustrated with the way the industry uh, was being, was I guess, being portrayed. Um, for example, if you don't know the IT support world, uh, it hasn't changed for 30 years. It's been operated the same way for such a long period of time. Um, but businesses want more. They want they want to learn. They want to do different. They want to improve. They want to scale. They want to innovate. And MSPs, IT support providers, uh, are not consultants. Um, and they don't provide what businesses want. So we were doing that in our previous uh, IT support company. We did it for eight years. Um, and through, during that uh, process, what we were understanding from businesses, uh, what we were providing, and while we were, you know, while we were growing so quickly and winning so many deals, uh, every other IT company wasn't doing that. So like, we'll, we would love to be in a position to not just help 100 customers, but to help a million or tens of millions of companies. Uh, and obviously from a service delivery perspective, it's not really possible. Uh, so like, okay, let's start tinkering with some ideas on how we could, uh, we could do it. So essentially that's why we started playing with the idea of going away from a service-based industry, what we've been doing for 17 years, into more of a product-based uh, industry, which we'll dive into a bit more detail. But yeah, essentially that's, that's the, the core reason for that pivot. Yes. So can you give an example of what it would look like uh, and, and, how, and what the early and easy low-hanging fruit was to move from a, a high-touch service to more of a product-based experience? Yeah. Uh, in the beginning, we had no idea what we wanted to do. Uh, like, you know, you come up with these amazing ideas and you don't know if they're going to work or not. So for the first, uh, at least the first 12 months, uh, you know, I'm talking three years ago now, for the first 12 months, it was just whiteboard strategies. You know, what we were doing inside our, our IT support company, what did customers love um, and what ideas could we come up with uh, to build a product around? Um, what we ended up falling on, which is what Tribu is today, is around the technician. Um, one thing we did a lot of research into is the technician providing the service to a um, business, to a customer, uh, majority, and I'm not speaking to everyone here, but uh, the, your audience will understand this, majority of technicians are not customer-focused people. They love to sit behind a computer screen, sit behind a keyboard, and tap away and solve problems. Providing amazing customer service is not their forte. Uh, and that was a, a struggle that we had internally in our business. And, and since then, we found that every MSP globally has that same struggle. 
Um, I've now interviewed over five and a half thousand IT support companies, MSPs, um, and that's why we've got the we've got the data to back up. You know, I guess what we what we're trying to achieve. That was one aspect was around that struggle from a tech point of view, as in what the customer is expecting from an IT support company versus what they're actually delivering. And there's a big miss, mismatch, right? Because techs want to solve problems. Customers don't want problems. Um, mm. So that was the first thing. The second thing was around uh, the actual technician, uh, the, I guess the hiring process and the supporting the process around uh, upskilling that technician. So when a technician comes in or an engineer comes into a IT support uh, company, uh, they want to learn, they want to grow, they want to tinker, they want to solve problems. But they come in as a level one engineer, and then typically six months. So a level one engineer is like you know solving, um, taking the phone call and solving basic problems: computer's not working, password resets, printer doesn't work, you know, frustrations from customers every day. They do that for six to eight to twelve months, and they go, "Okay, I'm kind of bored of doing this every day. I want to do more exciting problem solving." But the issue is. 70% of all tickets, all support requests that come into a help desk every single day is level one, 70%. So you can't upskill and, and take a technician from doing mundane everyday work uh, on these level ones because there's not many level two tickets that are coming in. There's not many level three tickets that are coming in. So there's this big issue around this um, recruiting process and always trying or always wanting to get more technicians on board. Uh, because technicians want to leave and they want to go to a different company and upskill, um, there's no career path for them. And so that's one of, the, one of the aspects of what we're trying to solve over the next three to five years is creating better career paths for technicians. Yeah, okay. That was a really good way to explain it. How do you create a career path for a problem that doesn't really exist, right? Where 70% of the tickets that come in are fairly basic. Where What's the trajectory of people after a year? Mm, yeah, they move on. So in the in the company that they're currently working in, they'll um, complain and, and moan and, and talk to their team leaders or the owners and go, okay, I'm bored now. What else can I do? Uh, the owner might give them a few incentives or a few little mini projects to work on. They'll keep them going for another six to 12 months. Uh, but at some point in that career process, you get bored, right? Um, and I'm not talking, not, to, not speaking for everyone. Like there are tech, techs out there that love doing level one work and they'll do it for 30 years. That's just who they are. Um, but especially the newer generation coming through the system now, like in any industry, they want to learn. They want to push their boundaries. They want to upskill. They want to go to the next stage. Uh, that's up until what we'll be delivering in the next two to three years. Um, it doesn't exist in this industry. There is no career path for them. And are, are, just to set the landscape here, are most of the companies, say if I'm buying a computer and I have a problem, am I talking to the company who made the computer or, or say a printer or some, some whatever, some consumer device? Or is there really a, a massive consolidation around customer support that these companies are, are offloading into? Like, Do most companies manage their own support or do the vast majority not and send it off mm. to someone else? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So it's around the vendors, right? So we're doing like HP or Dell or Lenovo. These these when you we you know Apple for example, when you're buying your Macs, when you're buying a computer for the first time, if you're if it's personal use, typically you'd go back to the vendor um, to ask for support. But they're supporting the hardware that they've sold you. They're not supporting typically the applications that are on that device. Apple, different story. You know they've mm -hmm. you've got end to end. Um, but you know, when you're buying a, a Windows computer, you're buying the hardware and then Microsoft is on top. So then you have to get Microsoft support. So this is why the IT support industry 
started, um, you know, 30, 40 years ago is because there was no one providing that holistic support, hardware and software all in one. Um, and so that's how, it's, that's how it literally started. And from there, there's, you know, millions of IT support teams all around the world supporting personal and business problems uh, because, yeah, that's just how it is. Is it is it really around computers or is that just one of many examples? Because I'm picturing I have problems with all sorts of things around the house. Uh, are they, like, is it, say your average company that is, I'm trying to understand when a company would tend to offload the or bring back the customer support uh path like is there a certain demographic of, of mm. company that like more super technical companies tend to keep it in-house because it's so hard versus like a, a window shade company might outsource it or, or vice versa or is it split by size or how, yeah. how does it look it, it's definitely the the older uh, traditional organization so you know when you when you're working in the tech startup industry uh which you have been for a long time now and 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 i've only just started my journey in the last 18 months um it's a, it's a different world uh, it support and many service providers exist for traditional business um yes tech startups will require internal and outs outsourced it uh, particularly you're a tech startup so you get funding and then you build your own teams right um or you just fix it yourself uh, this is just the way you're thinking. Uh, traditional business, manufacturing, legal accounting, um, hospitality, retail, all the traditional businesses that have existed for many years, they used outsourced IT providers or they use, or they build their own team. If the Typically what the average is, you get to about 100 staff in a business and then you start hiring internally. Up to 100 staff in your business, it's not viable to have an internal IT person. It's, it's actually more viable to outsource it to an IT company. Is that because of the the frequency of calls is just not enough to justify a full time position? Correct, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, got you, it. You got don't it. you don't have that many. So on average, you can want statistics. On average, it's um, for every staff member in a company, we'll call an outsourced IT provider half an hour per month. For every staff in the company, there's half yeah. an hour per month. Of, oh, that's a good that's a good uh, barometer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So until you so, get to 100 yeah. staff, it's not a full-time right. gig for someone. Right. Right. Um, right. But right. They, even over 100 staff, there's still companies that um, use outsourced IT companies because when you get to 100 staff, it's not just supporting the the local PC and maybe the one printer anymore. You're now supporting this big infrastructure and all the different technical requirement, like all the technical skills you need to support a larger company. If you did hire one person, they can't do it all anyway. So the idea is that we still use outsourced because then you have a team of, you know, experts that you can rely on to help you uh, support your business. Got it. And would, would, uh, tribute tribute would, would you guys sell both into the, the specialized customer support IT companies, as well as like, um, Southwest airlines that has a big customer support team or, or are you just focused on the former? help desk in general any yeah, organization okay. that has a help desk whether it's internal external uh one man band we have customers you know uh, or one man what we call one man bands in our industry one man band it support guy uh using our software uh, and we have companies that have a couple hundred staff uh in their it support team using our software um cool. as long as you have a help desk uh then our software will add value to your business got it all right uh, we're, we're making progress, and thank you for explaining it. Uh, so, what, what, what's the experience like if, as a customer support rep for, uh, you know, say, an airline with a few hundred employees, say, a small airline? 
Um, they sign up with the software. I imagine they're still using some sort of um, what are popular service now ticketing systems Zendesk, Freshdesk. Right. Yeah, right. Freshdesk, Zendesk. Yeah. So they're using those. Is that is is uh, Tribu layering into those tools? That's correct. Yeah, we plug in behind the scenes, so the actual end user. As in the, the the person they're supporting, their staff members in this case, if it's in a larger corporate, uh, don't doesn't know that we exist. We sit behind the scenes. We plug our AI that we've been building into the existing system and eliminating, or starting to eliminate the problems. Um, so uh, before it, when an end user submits a ticket, so like a staff member submits a ticket with their problem, computer's running slow, you know, password resets, all the basic mundane level one tasks. Um, our platform. Analyzes that, categorizes it, classifies it, does all the mundane manual handling admin work behind the scenes, uh, and before it goes to an actual technician to start working on it. Hmm. I would imagine that Zendesk and Freshdesk and all these desks are doing this to some degree. Do you feel that they're just not focused on it, or are they? It's really up to the the customer, and therefore it's kind of a problem that hasn't been addressed. Or what's the state of affairs? Yeah, there's a lot of competition in the space that we're playing in, but they're focused on a different area. All If you look at all the platforms from ServiceNow all the way through Zendesk, Freshdesk, all the way down to like ConnectWise, Datto, Kaseya, all the major platforms that exist, there's about, I don't know, 40. Um, they're all focused on the end user, uh, as in if they're building chatbots, they're building uh, FAQ, knowledge base type of regurgitation, what we call regurgitation articles. So an end user or a staff member jumps on, hey, my computer's broken. The chatbot comes back and says, cool, have you tried this, this, and this? And it's just FAQ information, right? Mm -hmm. We're focused and our platform's focused on the technician. So on the agent, the, the actual IT technician working inside the help desk, our software is to improve their life. And so, um, uh, so if you put us in the same category as a chatbot, which we're not, but it's like, well, we're, we're here to help and make the engineers and the technicians' life a lot easier, where a lot of the other vendors are really focused on, let's try and make the customer's life a lot easier. So we actually integrate uh, into these other platforms, right? So we add value from the back end, where they're adding value from the front end. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because I, 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 inter I interacted one earlier today. You know, chatbot on, on a banking site where you go in and you ask a question. And it's like, did you mean this? And I was like, no, no, no. And they're like, check out this article. I'm like, no, no, no. Human, human, human. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and finally, yeah. Well, yeah. We're, we're, not getting, we're not getting into that space. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then uh, we are experiencing high call volumes right now. And it's like a Friday afternoon. Um, <laughs> every company is always experiencing high call volumes at all times. It's one thing I've learned recently. So, um, yeah, so you guys, in terms of scale, you've started about two years ago, right, 2020, and raised a couple million, I imagine, what, 15 people, somewhere in that range? Yeah, so we yeah. did pre-seed. Pre um, we, we are a Delaware corporation, even though we're based here in Australia. Um, we're only literally based here because of COVID. Um, hopefully not too longer. Uh, we'll be in the US and the Europe. Uh, we're a Delaware corporation. We did raise 948,000 US pre-seed. Um, majority of the funds have gone into Australia, uh, developers, uh, we do, we also have staff in New Zealand and the UK. Um, the, the function, I guess what we've been able to achieve over the last 12 to 18 months is two things. One, 18 months ago, no one knew that we even existed. Um, so now we're on a, a large scale. We're in, um, we've got partners registering to our software in 19 different countries. 
which is quite, quite cool. Uh, obviously, US, Canada, uh, the big markets, um, a lot of people coming on board, but also, you know, in Germany, Netherlands, uh, Spain, some really small countries in Europe um, uh, getting a really good good adoption because we can translate now in every language, like literally live mm -hmm. translation, um, which is pretty cool from an AI perspective. The we're currently raising our seed round. So what what we've been able to achieve this last you know twelve to eighteen months with our pre seed round was uh, validate that one the market wants uh, wants what we're aiming to build. We, we haven't officially, you know, 100% build it, so keep that in mind. We're still building AI. Um, you know, it's still going to be probably another two to three year journey. Uh, mark, uh, market validation, uh, adoption. So we've been able to get adoption on board from, uh, from IT companies, uh, from, you know, as I mentioned before, one-man bands all the way through to larger corporates. Um, and the third is uh, around, can we do what we say we want to do? Can we actually change the IT industry forever? Uh, we're really, really like at the very beginning here, right? We're talking 5%. Um, but we know there's a there's an opportunity and we know that we have been able to um, experiment because um, we're working with universities uh, and their AI teams to experiment with some um, groundbreaking stuff that's literally never been done before. People have never thought of doing it. And so we've been able to confirm some of those hypotheses uh, to allow like us where? to then. What uh, has never been done before? So <laughs> live, um, live translation um of the ticket uh or what we call in our our support world the ticket so typically what would happen is uh from an ai perspective and a data set you'd go into a, a say a larger corporate let's talk about your airline um that you've got investment into maybe uh you talk about your airline you uh work with their it team they give you a data set of all their information that data set that goes back to the organization, i.e. the AI company, you plug it into your system you and do analysis, you work on it over a few months to, um, I guess, build the model that that airline wants, and then you provide the model back to uh, the airline, and they've now got the working model. Uh, we've been able to do that live, um, i.e. we can plug into the back end of the system as a ticket comes through, uh, it's like the support ticket comes through into their, into their system, we process it on the spot. And so we don't need to take it away and analyze it. Um, we can literally give them the information immediately, i.e. you've got to consider you know, one ticket doesn't really mean much, so you need you know, hundreds of thousands of tickets to, to mean something for that particular airline. But we then do historical data. So give us a couple of hours to a couple of days, depending on the large the data set, and um, we'll have a custom model built for that airline um, yeah, within the first week at least, uh, so then they can be operational. So that that live um, and this was it was a complete fluke and mistake to be honest. That we didn't we didn't plan this. We didn't know this wasn't even possible. We just said, how do we get data? We need MSPs, IT companies to give us data. Cool. Let's just build this Microsoft Teams integration. Let's put it out there and integrate into the back end of their IT system and get them to start using it. We didn't realize that was uh, groundbreaking scenario until we got the university oh. and PhD people and scientists involved going, well, this has never been done before. Okay. So, and the, originally, like, it's not possible. Like, what do you mean? We just, Why would it not be possible? Yeah, I know. I that, yeah. I, I, from a, I'm not a tech guy. Like, uh, you know, I'm not a developer um, or, a, or an AI modeler. <laughs> so don't quote me here. Uh, and this is, you know, this is going back, you know, two and a half years, nearly three years ago, right? Um, I don't know. It's just, it didn't never been done yeah. before. It's usually, let's go, let's go to a corporate, let's get a big data set. Let's go back to our, our studio. Let's work on the data set and let's take it back in. It's just, that's just how it's always been done. And we're like, no, no, well, we don't want that. We want to just get live data from 
um, yeah. our customers. We don't, um, yeah, like it just didn't make sense to me that that wasn't possible. Um, yeah. So it took them about 12 months to get it right. Like it wasn't quick and easy. Uh, and we kept pushing and pushing and pushing in to make it happen. Uh, and yeah, now we've got it. And now we've got, yeah, as I said, customers in 19 regions, 19 countries um, processing live data. Nice. Wow. Yeah, I, it's, it's fascinating behind the scenes that unless you're in the space, it's one of these spaces that you just have no clue as to what's going on if you're not working in the space. And the whole industry of BPOs and MSPs and all the other acronyms and yeah, it's, it's yeah. a wild west going on behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but it's it's such a it's it's kind of a unique space. It's not like there's a lot of these behind the scenes spaces because how many people are making phone calls, emails about tickets that they have, problems that they have. I mean, if you if I think about all the products that are around me and all the problems that I have with these things, it's like it's enormous. You know, there mm-hmm. has to be a giant machine of people, you know, and machines to help people with that coming in from all over the world. Yeah. yeah. And it's getting more complicated. Uh, so if you look at the whole COVID situation, it's pushed everyone to go cloud. So you before COVID, everything was like, I had a server in my office and everything was on my server. And then next minute, everyone has to go remote working, right? Everyone's got to work from home. Businesses weren't set up for it. Employees weren't set up for it. So it's, this last two years has been a massive shift into the cloud, but not just from an infrastructure point of view, but also from all the SaaS apps. If you look at every new tech startup that's coming out is another new SaaS app, right? And so uh, you want uh, businesses want to have the latest and greatest. It used to be the average of eight applications in any organization. Now the average is at 15. No doubt in, let's call it six months, a year from now, the average will probably be 25. Like the, the more apps that are coming out, the more people are wanting to use it in their business, but then someone's got to support it. Mm. Who do they go yeah. to? Do they go to their, yeah. their administrative person? Do they go to the guy down the road or do they call an IT provider? And that's typically why an IT provider exists. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, respect to those people. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit. I'm so curious as to your, uh, your interest in all the th- all the things. So, what what are your? You mentioned pre-show that you are passionate, knowledgeable, experienced in a few areas, and and you dive deep into those. What are those? What are your? Right now, the hot topic on my mind is is raising capital. So, literally, my entire world this last uh, eighteen months has been in the capital raising um, uh, process. But before I, I talk about that, I was in the service industry for. 15 years previously, right, in the IT support service, service industry, um, providing services and building service teams. Switching gears from that to being a product-based company is completely different, and we had no idea what we are getting ourselves into. Um, and then switching gears again to then raising capital. So when you're building a service business, you go win a customer, you get income in the door, you go hire a team member. You go win some more customers, you get some more income. You get... There's no concept around raising capital. There's no concept around outside money. It's just, how do you build a company? You get income from customers. Mm-hmm. When you're switching to a product-led company and you need you know, millions of dollars to build, in our case, AI, it doesn't exist, so you can't get customers, right? And so switching, switching gears and mindsets to that has been really interesting, not just for myself, but our entire um, 
co-founding team because we've all been in the service industry. Uh, so that's been, yes, yeah, super interesting journey this last couple of years. Uh, and then diving into the investment world um, has been awesome uh, because uh, the I wouldn't have learned and, and met the people I've met now globally uh, if I didn't dive into this space. Um, one, one really key point around this is Australia versus US or really Australia versus the rest of the why world. Did, why did you decide to set up as a Delaware company to start? One main reason, uh, raising capital in Australia is extremely difficult. Uh, we, I met, I met with VCs and met with uh, angel investors when we had an idea. Um, you know, this was our vision. This is what we're trying to achieve. You know, we, we bootstrapped for a little bit. And it was like, cool, come back to us when you have a product to market. Come back to us when you've solved the problem. It's like, no, this is going to be like years of building before we can solve the problem. Uh, and so the Australian market, Australian investment market is very risk adverse. They, they, they want to see traction. They want to see a full business plan with income to support it before they go, cool, let's get some, you know, pull out our uh, money out of pocket. Uh, so really it was based, uh, we didn't choose to raise capital in the US. We had no choice. Really? Um, why, why is it? I mean, Australia is a pretty, I don't know how big Australia is, but it's a pretty decent sized country, right? There should be enough people there that have enough capital and enough people that are entrepreneurs. Is it a cultural thing? I mean, is it, it can't be a money thing, right? It's definitely not a money thing. It's a, it's a old, what we call old money thing. So there's, you know, um, yeah, you're right. There are millions of rich people in this country, but they've made their money from property. They've made their money from mining, from resources, um, they haven't made their money from tech startups. Tech startups didn't exist. You know, you've got Atlassian, then you've got Canva, and then you've got ClipChamp. Well, that's three unicorns. Mm. Do we have any others? Like, it's never yeah. existed, right? There's, there's been no culture in Australia around the tech startup ecosystem. Um, complete opposite. You know, it's been, what, 20 years at least in, in Silicon Valley and, and the US. Uh, this is only just starting the last three years. So because there's no ecosystem, no one knows how to do it. So you've got this old money, which could totally go into investment into the tech e ecosystem, uh, but they don't get it. They don't know what their returns are. You go, well, can I see my 6% of my 10% return every year for the next 10 years? Yeah, no, I can't show you that. I can't show you. It doesn't work like that. Um, so that's, and, and because of that reason, a lot of the VCs are backed by family office and a lot of the family office is backed by old money. Um, so they have to do their regulations and, you know, crosses and, and dots and make sure that, they're, yeah, they're following the yeah. right path. Was it a hard process to incorporate in the U.S., being in Australia? Or do you have to have somebody here or what was that like? Uh, it was extremely frustrating and uh, I don't, um, I'm more than happy to share my blog uh, that I wrote uh, with your audience if they're ever interested in incorporating in the U.S. Would I say it's a hard, hard, hard process to do now? No. Uh, but it was a six-month journey for me to get the answers that I needed to be able to do it. Um, so it was a very frustrating six months um, to be able to tick all the boxes we need to to get incorporated uh, and to raise capital. So getting incorporation is one thing, but then you've got to do all these other aspects of it to be able to raise capital. Um, and so that took its toll mentally and physically. Um, you Wait, know, you have you... to – all right. So you're raising yeah, – I assume you started off as a C-Corp, Delaware C-Corp. We still are Delaware so C-Corp, yeah. And you incorporate, uh, Delaware has, does basically all the incorporations. I mean, they do a lot of them in the U.S. When you're incorporated, that was a six-month process of back and forth, them requesting some sort of identifying information or yep. 
I, I would think by oh, now um... this is pretty streamlined. <laughs> you would, you'd want to hope. Um, okay, you're going to love this story then. So uh, it was the eve of Christmas. Uh, so we launched in 2020. So when we raised our pre-seed round, so Christmas uh, year before, uh, well, we went live with our syndicate, syndicate uh, launch accelerator. So um, Jason Kalkarnas was uh, we were fortunate enough to be a part of his, his, his accelerator program. Um, well, the, you know, a, only a handful of Aussies ever to go through um, accelerator program, which is awesome. Um, anyway, we uh, fast forward. That's a whole different story. But fast forward to raising uh, again this again this um, incorporation live, so we can get this syndicate live to rate to be able to get the money in the door. It was literally before Christmas. Um, worked months on this process to make this happen. And the cynical was about to go live and we still hadn't um, had the complete green tick that we were allowed to actually raise raise money. Back and forth emails, phone calls with different different departments in the US trying to figure this, this out. And we finally got an answer, which was we needed to submit um, these forms. Um, and so we had to print these forms out, fill them all out, totally fine, just totally you know, standard. Um, but we couldn't email them, we couldn't fax them, we had to post them. The yeah. only way that, um, to get this Delaware C Corp finalization was to post these forms. I'm like, oh my God. Okay, so we're in Australia. We don't have any, you know, it needs to be a physically wet signature. So it's not like I could just call someone in the US and right. say, hey, can you do it for me? Um, Wait, why can't? I mean, you could, right? You probably could. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let, let's, let's, not look, let's not go there. Um, <laughs> um, the possibility was there. We chose not to do it. Let's... <laughs> hey, you got to be an entrepreneur, man. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, uh, keep in mind that like, high risk yeah, there. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Well, you hear these stories all the time around the US and, and people getting sued and what the government does. Like, I just, I don't want to, yeah. Well, let's yeah, do yeah. things. Let's do things about board. Okay. Anyway, wet signature. All right. So we've got this document. We've got the wet signature. Um, our syndicate goes live in two days, which was the 24th of uh, December. And um, I'm like, cool, we've got to post these documents. Do you think I could figure out how we could post, physically post documents to the US from Australia? Absolute night and get there in two days. Absolute nightmare. I phoned every courier company, every um, transport. I literally could not figure out how to post these documents to the US in two days. We're in, well, I'll say we're in 2022. It was like, you know, 2020, but slash 2021. Like, how... How is that not a thing these days? How can I not post something so quickly? I don't, man, what if there's um, COVID on that paper? You know? <laughs> what if there's sprinkle low COVID? Yeah, yeah. Um, so once again, back through the US department, figured it all out. They were able to connect me with um, DHL. DHL was able to organize it for me to go to the Brisbane airport um, and physically drop these papers off to the Brisbane airport so they could put it onto a plane to get it over to... Um, get it over to, uh, to the, you know, obviously Delaware. Well, I'm assuming we're you know, somewhere in Delaware to make it happen. Uh, but then it was a four-week wait. There was no two days processing. It was then full four-week wait for Delaware. Um, I say Delaware, the, the government body to then process yeah. the documents. Yeah. But it was only, yeah. It's a very interesting uh, process to go through. Uh, so, that's so for did sure. you launch? So, I mean, did you have the, the syndicate launch? Yeah, we still launched. Uh, we we um, To prove that we could do it, we showed them the receipt. Yeah, I'm trying to think yeah. of that, all the detail. We took a photo of the receipt that's physically been posted. Um, so we had to post one to one department, another to another department. We showed the receipts. We put those receipts into the syndicate. That Cool, it's in process, totally fine. It'll be approved. Yeah, but let's go live. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So basically, a giant pain in the ass. <laughs> You're taking me back a bit. Thank you for that conversation. Yeah. It's good. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I don't want to relive uh, that. So, tan yeah. like literally, your audience or anyone you ever want to share this with, don't ever do what I did. Read my blog, figure out what you have to do, and just avoid six months of pain. Mm. Yeah, thanks for writing that. You know, it's like there's got to be other people who are going to read that blog and not make that same mistake, which is, you know, easy to make. You don't know. You go through this experience, like dealing with corporate and, or not corporate, but government agencies. Mm -hmm. It's like they're vague, slow, and cumbersome, and yeah. Yeah, post. You have to post yeah. documents like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, so you got that done. You raised. You're now onto the races. Uh, what, what, is your co-founder, you guys split it up. Your experience is really on the, you know, the IT management, customer support industry. Um, on the AI side, did you find an early engineer? Was it a co-founder? Uh, how did you start building out the product in the beginning days? Yeah, there's three co-founders in the business. Myself, uh, I head up in investor relations, uh, all things sales and marketing for the time being until we hire head of growth. Uh, Amy, head of operations and Dean, head of product. Uh, the three of us were in the previous business together for the last seven years. Um, and so we've built that relationship over a seven year period to then start this company. Uh, Dean had a product. Uh, he's always loved tinkering. He's a, he's a tech guy. He's an engineer. Mm. He loves tinkering, figuring stuff out. Uh, he had no AI experience, never went to university and did AI. Um, uh, but three years ago, when we started this you know, idea conversation around this, he started tinkering, working out what would work, what wouldn't work, different applications, you know, the different infrastructures that exist in the world between you know Google, um, Amazon, Microsoft. Um, you know, just just started tinkering really. Uh, and so started building a prototype um, from not really, you know, obviously did a bit of coding back at university, uh, but that was like 20 years ago. Um, uh, and so he's led up the team. So, and then we started, once we got the raise, got the income in the door, then we started building a team um, of yeah, smart people around us, uh, way smarter than us when it comes to development. Uh, and that was a struggle on its own. Yeah. Yeah. Don't even, I don't know if I want to talk about the struggle of hiring devs, but oh my God. It was, yeah. Well, it was I kind of, <laughs> Why? Why is it so hard now? Is it just the the COVID effect? Every company's remote, and yep. there's a ton of cash, so people are raising money easier and competing. I mean, mm -hmm. it makes sense. Uh, is that kind of your experience? Plus, being in Australia, I would imagine there's it's more competitive in a, is it more or less because you're not you're you know you're on a different time zone you're on the other side of the world than the u.s and, and south america for the most part so do you try to really focus your people uh on the same i mean you kind of have to on same same time zone throughout southeast asia or uh india or yeah how do you how do you think about that yeah, we're still, I guess, a young tech startup, right? So we have considered the time zone scenarios, but not so much from a development perspective, more from a yeah. sales and marketing. Uh, that's why we already have someone in, in New Zealand covering the, the US time zone. And we also have someone in um, the UK covering the European and US time zone too. But that's more you know, from a sales perspective. In the development space, the, the cool thing I, is I got to say is Monday here in Australia, is still Sunday for you guys in the US. So we do all our product rollouts, updates, everything on a Monday because it doesn't affect anyone. Everyone's on the weekend. Um, oh. So that's actually, um, had never considered that even being a bonus when we first started. Never even thought about it until we got going. 
Um, so yeah, Monday is our is our product update uh, day every you know couple of weeks. Um, so that worked out really well. So from a development perspective, it hasn't um, had an impact just yet. It will you know once we start building up a US team, um, no doubt we'll get developers in the US as well uh, in that region. Um, but the main reason we're still keeping the developers here in Australia is for R&D purposes. So the government incentivizes us. So for every person we hire, we get 43% back from the government. Uh, so what? How, 43% back. So you hire someone, round numbers, say you paid them 100K USD equivalent, you get, get 43%. Yeah. I don't get it. What? What's the catch? Um, the Two, two things, but um, you'll, you'll laugh at this conversation as well, is around COVID. So it, it was not a struggle to hire developers before COVID. COVID hit and US corporations, head offices, are now setting up sub-offices in Australia because the price hike in US went up so high. Um, so then they pushed, they came down to Australia, set up mini offices and started hiring development teams and not just one or two developers, like 50, 100, 200 developers at a time which has pushed all pricing up across the board. So we could, we could originally hire a really decent developer for 110,000 Australian. So what's that, about 90-ish thousand uh, US. Mm -hmm. um, to hire good developers now, we're starting at 150 to 170 Australian. And, um, and it's just going up and up and up because of, uh, yeah, we're running out of developers. We're running out of skill sets because of COVID. And this is not just us, right? This is every industry I've spoken to in the last 12 months. Everyone's struggling because there's no imports, exports happening. Um, no people are traveling around the world, um, coming out of universities and, you know, graduates and all that stuff. Wait, do you think it's, do you think that the trend is that because every company goes remote, that tech, the product teams are more competitive globally where they're hiring people across the world? Do you, which Absolutely. is, I mean, it's, it's related to COVID for sure, but it's not, it's not what I would consider COVID would be like, uh, people's, you know, if, if you're in Brisbane and the shops are shut down, people don't have a job. Well, they're going to be home and they're going to want to learn a skill online. And so they get into coding or they get into something online and then all of a sudden they're in the game, you know, the, the online tech community game. Is that, uh, I, I sometimes wonder why it's so lopsided. You know, there's, there's going to be a lag of people learning how to be developers, say three to five years. But the number of jobs that are out there uh, presumably w would rise, but th they wouldn't spike necessarily. You know, the number of, I guess there's kind of pent up demand might be the case. So like Google and Amazon and all these companies in the US, even like mid cap companies, they want to hire way more than they can. So they're, they're sort of understaffed perennially. And then while it looks like we're sort of at this equilibrium, really they're starving for, for developers and all of a sudden, boom, we're remote. And then this massive pool of developers opens up, you know, in Australia being one of them, English speaking country, really smart, affluent. So let's go hire all those guys suck them all up and then big tech companies grow even faster and bigger than they were before. Mm -hmm. And then there's less people in Australia to work for local companies like yours. Does that rant make sense? It, it, it definitely does. And I guess the summary, this really cool point, point you made. So yes, the wages are pushed up because we, we literally can't compete from a wage perspective. If we're paying a developer, what well, we were paying 110 now, so we're paying the average is 150. And a US tech company comes along and goes, oh, nah, let's not pay 150, let's pay 200 because we can. Because 200 still is only 170 US, right? Um, you get that, that 
Um, might even be cheaper now. It might even be 150. But you know, like you get that that bonus of having a US dollar versus an Australian dollar, uh, and so there's that wage difference. So it's it's great for US tech companies to be able to hire Aussies. Uh, but I shouldn't be promoting it because it's hard for us to keep them here. Uh, and it's great. For, it's great. It's great for staff because they get they get paid more and they get to work for yeah. a US tech company. And it's inspiring and it's exciting and and all the rest of it. But the other point you made around the COVID scenario, because you're right, this remote working lifestyle has been here forever. The main thing around COVID is it's now accepted. We're now able to do it from an acceptance perspective, i.e., yes, we could set up remote working before COVID, um, but it's like, oh, how do we do it? And and will it be accepted in our culture? And like, um, how will our teams get along? How will we communicate more effectively? Like, Microsoft Teams never existed before COVID, really. Um, Slack's been, was dabbling around the scenes for a long time. Um, and like Zoom, look, look, look they, the share, the share pricing, yeah. like there's everything is spiked, right? Because yeah. it, it became the norm. And because it's the norm now, it's where do you want to hire your next staff? I don't care. Find the best person on the world. Do not care where they are. Um, yeah. That was never a conversation before. Yeah, yeah. It is a pretty wild conversation. I mean, it's just, it's just uploading all of human intellectual capability and potential into the cloud, into the, into the internet, which I mean, it's amazing. I think we'll be able yeah. to create as a society of a global society, we'll be able to create a lot more really cool shit than we would if we're just look, working in our little, you know, local, local mm -hmm. caves. Uh, just go show how you, limited we are as people, isn't it? That we had to wait for something like COVID to hit to actually yeah. do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although, you know, tech companies were early, but like, you know, banks and large airlines, you know, they, they, they were yeah. certainly slow to the game. Uh, so uh, government in Australia realized this. And then that's when they created this. So if you pay somebody 100K, they would they would give you a, four, is it a discount on taxes or they're literally paying you a percentage Both. of what you're paying someone? The, wow. If you're, if you're, if you're making money, so if you're a profitable company, then it's not uh 43%. They uh, don't quote me here, but it's say 20%. Yeah. It's less, sure. um, but it goes towards your tax first. So if you do have a tax bill, tax bill gets paid first. And then if there's any left over, then you, you get that money. Um, but if you're not profitable, i.e. we're not, we're still, we're only doing $4,000 a month US for in recurring revenue. doesn't pay any bills at all. Um, uh, so that money goes towards uh, R&D incentives, which goes towards hiring more developers. Wow. So basically that's tax money that comes out of people who are paying into that. And yeah, yeah essentially I mean, it comes out, comes out of everyday yeah, workers, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do you, does it make sense? I mean, do you agree with that policy? Um, I agree the fact that we want to keep our talent local and we want to keep the economy local. So I agree. I understand why they are trying to not, trying to keep, not just developers across the board, right? But trying to keep people in Australia and not get them to move to the US and not get them to move to a different country because the more population we have, the better the economy, it's better for, better for everyone. Um, so I definitely agree agree on that point. They probably could do things differently, but that's like any policy in any any, any yeah. government, right? Um, yeah. Uh, and so if we can incentivize businesses such as ours to keep hiring local, um, because if that incentive didn't exist, we would not be hiring local. We'd be going. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. You know well, I mean? So what happens? Say it didn't exist at all. You would say, okay, let's let's blitz towards some other country or location. What happens then? Uh, is it just a, a massive brain drain where all the smart people in Australia 
are working for companies outside Australia and, pe and people are leaving. People aren't leaving physically, right? I mean, there's really no need to if everyone's remote. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you don't have to physically, well, now you don't physically have to uh, leave. You can just work remotely. Uh, but the option's there, right? It, it's, do you want to go work in the US or do you want to stay in Australia? Uh, which wasn't really a conversation two or three years ago. It was like, no, you want to work for a US company? you got to move to the US. Um, um, so the incentive the incentive for the organization, and I guess with the way the government sees it as well, is yeah, to keep that stimulus going and yeah. to not, not just to leave it. One thing you're probably not aware, and this might be very similar to the US as well, is a massive part of our economy in Australia is students. So the, the whole university, um, high school student model, um, a lot of people coming from the Asian uh, countries, uh, millions from India every single year um, into our student population, they then stay here for three, five years. That's a massive boost for the economy. That has not happened for two years. Um, so that's why they're like, oh, what else can we do to really boost, uh, keep, keep the economy going? And so if we were to hire, yeah, if we didn't have the incentives, we'd probably still hire a few local if the price was right. But if everything was being pushed up from US tech companies, then probably not. Uh, but we'd be going to any, any other country, right? So in our previous business, we had a big team in the Philippines. Um, not that they're, um, they're the best developers for what we we're doing, but you'd go to other countries to find developers, right? Um, that you could do it um, in, a, in a bootstrap way. So, so what happens if millions of students are not coming to Australia and the shops are locked down for two years? It, it feels like almost by analogy, everyone's holding their breath and, and you hold your breath for long enough and you, know, you, you can't hold your breath anymore. Is there a, are things, what does it look like when things start to crack at the seams? Is it people going into leaving the country physically or are they, is everyone just jumping into tech or social unrest or, I mean, yeah. yeah. yeah what, uh, your... I, I think the, your analogy is somewhat right. I thought it was, if you hold your breath long enough, the problem would just go away. That's what, that's, <laughs> that's what, that's what people are thinking. Um, the, we're getting to the point the government can't keep, you know, spending this, these billions of dollars um, to try and keep the, keep the country afloat. Uh, that has to stop soon. Um, yeah, there, there is no, there is no real answer here apart from what yeah. we are seeing is businesses are now going bust liquidations. So, um, side topic, but the government has put so much money into the, into the economy, no company zero, like literally no company has gone into liquidation, uh, in the last two years, they've all stayed afloat. They're not profitable. They're losing millions of dollars, but they're staying afloat because the government's keep trying to keep everyone employed. That all finishes in a few months from now. When that finishes in a few months from now, the prediction is we're going to have thousands of businesses go under and millions of employees lose their jobs instantly. Mm. What happens? I'm not going to yeah. try and predict. Well, you have to. You, you have that, to. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like common sense where you either, you, as, a, as a government, you either, and this is not just Australia. I don't mean to pick on Australia, but you either keep locking people down, which is, effectively just not allowing people to be productive uh, physically in person, or you just do. You say, okay, now you can just do what you normally do. Obviously, there's chaos. It's like a, you know, the aftermath of a, like an economic war that goes on when all these businesses liquefy, but you, you can at least rebuild. If you don't let people rebuild, 
right? Like, what you know, you have to expect yeah. chaos, right? It's yeah. like, I don't know. Like what you said pre-show, we just need to just open up the world, yeah. get back to normality, yeah. and just see what happens. I know it's really yeah. unfortunate for a lot of people that are, you know, super sick and, and losing their lives. Um, don't question me about that. But from the economy perspective, we just have to yeah. get back on with life. But we have to learn to live with this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the people who lose their lives are the people who are very old and very sick already. And those people are, there's a cost benefit to this whole game because people commit suicide. They lose their businesses, their livelihoods. Mm -hmm. Like there's a massive fear of death. I think we have like largely in the West where mm -hmm. we're super scared of death, you know, because we have no idea what happens after mm -hmm. death. Yeah. And that's kind of, that, that, that I think is the, the, subconscious underpinning of you know so much of the policies of like whatever you do be safe safety number yeah. one priority everywhere you go it's like i don't know maybe maybe it's the top three priorities <laughs> i don't know should we be just loving life and get and we've only got yeah. you know let, let's say 100 years or let's say average is 80 years whatever it might be by the time we're that age um just enjoy life get on with it otherwise what's the point <laughs> i agree my man Thanks for hopping on today. I really enjoyed learning about what you're working on, learning about the industry, and just kicking it about uh, higher level ideas. Le uh, learning some stuff active? about Australia. Yeah, you know, I appreciate <laughs> it. I love Australia. I, like I said, I've been there twice and had a great time. Um, are you active on social media, Twitter, Facebook, or not Facebook? All of the above. Um, yeah. Lucas, Lucas Meadowcroft is my full name, and I'm the only one in the world. So you can find me on every social platform you can possibly, possibly search me on. Uh, but no doubt this will be in the show notes as well. Oh, I love it. And tribu.ai. Uh, tribu.ai. Meadowcraft kind of sounds like a video game. <laughs> <laughs> is it a combination name or what's the, what, the yeah. only one in the world? It's a pretty unique. Yeah, the history, because I did my DNA test uh, during COVID because I got a bit bored. Um, uh, background of, I guess, our family origin, probably like everyone else in the world, is from, you know, UK or Europe region. So uh, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, uh, London, um, that whole region is, um, is where you know, my ancestors are from. And, uh, and so it's formed off the back of most likely having, you know, someone owned a meadow uh, at mm. some point in time. And, um, and that's how it formed over the years. <laughs> the craftsman of the meadow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, <laughs> Appreciate uh, it. I'll talk soon. Appreciate it, man. Thanks very much. Cheers.